Hi everybody, Liam here. I just wanted to give you a heads up that the first part of this episode aired about three years ago, back when the Oakland Museum was opening a big exhibit of Dorothea Lang photos called Politics of Seeing. Now the museum is launching a huge digital archive of Lang's work. Uh, the website just went live a few days ago. And so I've decided to rerun the original episode along with a new bonus interview. So if you're curious about this digital archive, which includes some really fabulous and incredibly relevant photos that Dorothea Lang shot in Oakland and Berkeley and Richmond, stay tuned for the second half of the show. That's where I'll be interviewing Drew Johnson the Oakland Museum's curator of photography and visual culture, and we'll be talking all about why these photos are worth a new look now in 2020. Spoiler alert, the same kinds of social crises that Dorothea Lange documented back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, like racism, poverty, and a deeply flawed criminal justice system, yeah, those are all still uh, pretty big problems today. So once again, stay tuned for that interview, and we'll be talking about what makes these photos so powerful still half a century after they were taken. Okay, and just one other quick note. Every few months during the podcast credits at the end of the show, I give personal shout-outs to all my new Patreon supporters, the people who make this show possible. So if you want to hear that, stay tuned until the end when I'll be personally thanking all those wonderful, generous people. Okay, here's the show. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday, the podcast that looks back at stories from Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, and other towns throughout Alameda and Contra Costa County. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Dorothea Lange is one of the most famous photographers of all time, but if you don't recognize her name, it's okay. You definitely know her work. Seriously, close your eyes for a few seconds and think about the Great Depression. Whatever you're picturing in your mind right now probably looks like a photograph Dorothea Lange took. Homeless men at a soup kitchen, oaky families by the side of the highway, a stressed out looking mom holding her dusty kids. These photos represent a whole era. Probably every U.S. history textbook that you've ever had uses her pictures to show what the 1930s looked like. Here's Dorothea's goddaughter, Berkeley resident Elizabeth Partridge. I'm Elizabeth Partridge, and I've done a number of projects on Dorothea, primarily books, although I have helped a couple of people work on film projects. Before the Great Depression, Dorothea was a portrait photographer and her clients were the most elite families in the Bay Area. But then, practically overnight, she shifted her focus completely. She went from taking pictures of rich people in her fancy studio or in their mansions to photographing the poorest of the poor, out in the streets or in farm fields. I think she was just born full of a lot of spit and vinegar. Uh, honestly, I do. She just, you know, that was her nature to be a fighter. And because of her own, the strikes against her as a kid that she had to fight against, she didn't soften. She was always willing to take on 
anything, even, you know, even a big system. She wanted to show people why it was unfair. One thing that's clear from looking at Dorothea's work is whose side she was on. Dorothea always had trouble with authority. So she was always on the lookout for where it was messing in somebody's life. If you look at her photographs of the tenant farmers and the kind of quotations she would put underneath the photos about, um, there's one beautiful one she does of uh, an African-American guy, and and the quote underneath is, you heard about the tractor? That's against the black man, too. They're trying to kill us off like they killed off the mules. It's just painful and cuts right to the heart. Dorothea's photos told stories. Not just individual stories, but a big story. The story of America. What industrialization and modernization were doing to families and communities. And not just in the Deep South or the Dust Bowl, right here in the East Bay too. I think she saw the changes that were happening to the Bay Area after World War II is really emblematic of changes that were happening to the the nation as a whole, urbanization, suburbanization, development of the inner cities and so on. And that was really her great project after the war. That's Drew Johnson. My name is Drew Johnson. I'm the curator of photography and visual culture at Oakland Museum of California. Drew curated the new Dorothea Lange exhibition that's running at the Oakland Museum from now until August. And I'll be honest, until recently, I didn't know that Dorothea lived most of her life in Berkeley. Even some of the people that worked on the exhibition were amazed to see how many photographs in the show are not only Bay Area, but East Bay. There's Oakland, Berkeley, did a whole series on the Richmond shipyards. So she went all over the world, but her Bay Area connections were very, very deep. The show at the Oakland Museum features her Great Depression photos from all over the country. It's also going to show her lesser-known Bay Area work, which was mostly from the 1940s and 50s. And here's the reason why her photography is so iconic and still so relevant. Because the stories she was telling with these different photos from different places and eras, well, it gets back to that one big story idea. And we're still living in it. On one level, it's a story of inequality and migration and development. But on another level, it's just, this is what it's like to live in a world where everything is always changing and keeping up is a struggle. She saw herself as having a particular ability, a particular talent, and that talent was to reveal circumstances of people, relationships between people. It wasn't even always terrible circumstances of poverty or misery. It was uh, just, uh, she did a whole series on things like shoppers, how shoppers looked when they were downtown San Francisco or coming out of Swan's Market in Oakland. Just relationships about how cities were changing things. So You can tell from looking at her photos that Dorothea Lang understood something really deep about human nature. So that's what today's episode is about looking at Dorothea's life and her work to figure out what that was. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Stay tuned.
When Dorothea Lange was a little girl, one of the most famous dancers in the world was a woman who grew up in Oakland named Isadora Duncan. She's one of the creators of modern dance, and she developed a style that was kind of like the opposite of ballet. Instead of being precise and technical and skinny, Isadora had a natural, aggressive style, and she wasn't petite. She had curves, and she worked them. Anyway, when Dorothea was a teenager living in Hoboken, New Jersey, she went to go see Isadora perform in New York City. It changed her life. Watching Isadora Duncan perform was freedom for Dorothea. You know, that a woman dared to be so free. Again, Elizabeth Partridge, Dorothea's goddaughter and biographer. You know, she was from a very Germanic family, and there was a lot of limits on who she was supposed to be. So that was freedom for her. That was just looking at somebody just enjoying themselves and reveling in their body and what they could do. I think that was like a, an insight for her of just being free in a certain way that her life was not looking like it was going to be. The reason why her life was looking like it wasn't going to be very free, well, other than the fact that she was a woman living in the early 1900s, was because she got polio when she was a kid. The disease left her with a twisted foot. She walked with a limp for the rest of her life. Seeing Isadora just shattered Dorothea's sense of what was possible. Even though she had never touched a camera, she decided around this time that she wanted to be a photographer. Somehow, she managed to get jobs and apprenticeships in New York's top photo studios. After a couple years of this training, when she was 23, Dorothea decided it was time for an adventure. Dorothea was in Hoboken, New Jersey, learning a lot about photography when she decided to set off an around-the-world trip with a friend of hers named Franzi. So she and Franzi, like, took a train out west, because that was how you set off around the world. You got in a train. So they got as far as San Francisco, and the very first day they were there, Franzi was carrying all their money, and a little person was pickpocketed. And so they were stuck in San Francisco. What happened next is classic Dorothea. She took a bad situation and turned it into an opportunity. Dorothea immediately found a job at what they called a photo refinishing counter, which would be at the back of a drugstore. In those days, you would drop off a roll of film and get your negatives made and your photographs made. After she'd been there just for a couple of days, my grandfather went in to get some photographs that he'd had developed there. And he met Dorothea. And he came home and he said to my grandmother, You've got to meet this woman I met today. Her name's Dorothea Lang, and she practically jumped across the counter. Her energy is so enthusiastic. So they had her over for dinner. And that was the beginning of a lifelong friendship between the two of them. Elizabeth's grandmother was a pioneering fine art photographer named Imogen Cunningham. Through Imogen, Dorothea made a lot of connections. She was able to get funding to open up a fancy portrait studio, and her shop became one of the hippest hangout spots in the Bay Area's bohemian art scene. She became friends with people like Ansel Adams. She hung out with Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera when they were in town. And she married one of the biggest West Coast painters of the time, Maynard Dixon. As her reputation grew, her clientele 
got more and more elite. As she said, I was the one you came to if you could afford it. Again, Drew Johnson of the Oakland Museum. It's really where she honed her trade. It's where she developed her technical expertise. It's more, most importantly of all where she developed her ability to uh, her established rapport with people she was photographing, to really take time with people, to sort of get to know them and think about what the best way to express their personality visually was. And that totally laid the groundwork. Overall, the Roaring Twenties were a happy time for Dorothea. She and Maynard had two kids, so juggling family and work was hard because she didn't want to give up her career, but she got by. Then the economy crashed and everything changed. As the Great Depression was really closing in on people, people would, you know, they were heading west, looking for work, looking for a way to make a few bucks, looking for a handout, just trying to get by. There was this just kind of urge to head west. They would get to San Francisco and then they really could not go any further west. They were done. And so where her studio was, she could look down on the streets and these men would all be milling about, just not knowing what to do, where to go, how to move on in their lives. And one day she just said to herself, I'm gonna see if I can grab a hunk of lightning. I'm gonna go down there and I'm gonna take a picture of these guys, come back, develop the negative, make a print, and put it up on my wall in my studio and see if in 24 hours I've grabbed that hunk of lightning. And she did. And it was the beginning of an absolutely life-altering <laughs> career change for her. The photograph that Dorothea hung on her wall after that first trip down to the streets, it's now known as White Angel Breadline and it's one of the most famous photographs ever taken. A few years ago, a vintage print of it sold for over $800,000. What makes a photograph iconic? Beats me. It's, you know, it's, it's really mysterious. I can give you one tiny hint. Sure. Okay, if you have two contrasting things in a photograph, you increase the power of the photograph. In White Angel Breadline, you see a man holding a tin cup, leaning on a fence. Behind him is a sea of other men. They're facing away from him. You see his tremendous loneliness in the crowd. So those two things pop. But a lot of people could take those photographs and they wouldn't be brilliant. They would be factual, but they wouldn't be iconic. It was totally instinctive. She really operated on instinct. It's a rare moment where you have the sense of someone discovering their purpose instantly and then never looking back because from then several more trips onto the streets of San Francisco her work gets noticed by Paul Taylor and others and that was really what kicked it all off. Okay so who's Paul Taylor and what got kicked off? Paul Taylor was an economics professor at Berkeley. He was really the first person to study Mexican farm workers in California. He saw some of Dorothea's photos of the 1934 general strike at a gallery in Oakland, and a light bulb went off. The goal of Paul Taylor's research was to fight for better conditions for the farm workers he was studying. His bright idea was to recruit Dorothea as his partner, because he knew that combining her photos with his reports would draw a lot more attention to the absolutely hellish exploitation 
that was happening out in the fields. So they started to, to, to take these road trips. Uh, you know, in California, even then, the situation you had was large factory farms that employed seasonal farm labor, which means there's plenty of work for a short time, and then when the crops, when it's all picked and done, it's, it's goodbye, you're out of work, we want nothing to do with you. Obviously, the Associated Farmers uh, did not want people snooping around, taking photographs and, and recording. Or, as Dorothea put it, If they don't like you down here, they, they kill you and throw you in a ditch. So, not exactly the most romantic situation. But her and Paul did fall in love. And after she divorced Maynard, they got married. This was when she moved to Berkeley. Paul had a house near the university. But the marriage wasn't the only thing that came out of this. Remember, this is during the Great Depression, and President Roosevelt had created all these new government agencies as part of the New Deal. One of them was called the Farm Security Administration, or FSA, which was trying to help small farmers and sharecroppers. One of the reports that she did for the state fell into the hands of Rexford Tugwell, who headed the FSA and Stryker, and they were just blown away. Stryker was Roy Stryker, who became Dorothea's boss when the FSA hired her. The report was one of the farm worker projects she did with Paul. They said that they, they basically had no idea that, that photographs could be so powerful in arguing for exactly what it was that they were trying to accomplish. And it says it changed the whole direction of the agency, seeing those, those reports. During the Great Depression, a lot of small farmers lost their land through foreclosure. That's why there were so many families roaming the country, looking for work, or even just food. The way her photos were used during the Great Depression is they were sent back east to this guy, Roy Stryker, and it was his job to get the photos out in newspapers and magazines to create empathy in the public for the people who were getting hardest hit during the Depression. And also, the photographs were used in Congress to show people in Congress where help was needed so they would pass uh, financial aid packages. Dorothea spent the next few years crisscrossing the country, taking the photographs that would end up visually defining the era. Mostly portraits of people who had lost everything. This was also when Elizabeth's dad, Ron Partridge, started working with Dorothea. His previous job had been lugging Ansel Adams' gear around Yosemite. Dorothea had Ron drive her around while she went out looking for photographs, working for the Farm Security Administration. He would be driving and she would be saying, slow down, Ron, slow down, because she was looking for anything that would capture her interest, a boss, a camp, people in the fields working. You know, she was just, she just wanted to go slowly till she found something she wanted to get out to investigate. Slowing down. This is how she was able to take portraits of people that appear so honest and real. She was patient, but also she didn't have a choice. She knew how to take her time before she took a photograph. Now, partly she was forced to because of her polio. She couldn't just, as she said, swoop in and swoop out like the newsboys do. She couldn't do that. She had to walk slowly up to a person and then ask them who they were, what they were doing there, and then answer questions about herself what she was doing, how many children she had. And when those things were through, she might ask if she could take a photograph. She really always brought it back to spending time with people. 
She also talks about being a small, non-threatening woman with a limp and the role that played in, you know, not be, never being a threatening kind of a person. It, it really, you know, if you could sum it up in one word, it would be empathy. Empathy for what she called the walking wounded, uh, which was a category that she considered herself part of due to especially the polio, but also uh, other aspects of her childhood. Her father abandoned the family when she was about 12. Those kind of things, those were adversities she had to overcome. And the limp was with her every single day. So she certainly was always aware of people's ability to overcome adversity. There's a word that's always used to describe the way people look in Dorothea's portraits. Dignified. It's a cliche, and it's kind of close to being condescending, but it's accurate. Even though they're poor and hungry and often dirty and their lives have been uprooted, People in Dorothea's photographs don't look pathetic or broken. They look resilient. She felt the key to motivating change was to create identification. These photos were meant to create empathy so that people would support New Deal welfare policies. And to have empathy, there needs to be an interaction. The viewer needs to be able to see themselves in the subject. You need to think, that could be me. Eventually, World War II ended the Great Depression. Dorothea's two main projects from this era both have East Bay connections. For one series, she documented the Kaiser shipyards in Richmond. For the other, she followed Japanese-American families as they were forced from their homes and imprisoned in the Manzanar quote-unquote camp near Death Valley. In the exhibition, we present as two sides of the same coin of the home front. One is Everybody pulling together to build ships in Richmond, in the Richmond shipyards, working 24-hour shifts and really pulling for Uncle Sam. And it's a workforce that's integrated racially and, by, and men and women working together. And then this sort of the dark side of that, of pulling together for the war effort, is the internment and sending all these people of Japanese descent off to the concentration camps or the imprisoned camps, however you want to describe them. But they both were framed as, we have to do this to win the war. First, let's talk about the shipyards. This operation went from nothing to the biggest shipbuilding operation in history, practically overnight. In 1944, there were nearly 250,000 workers cranking out several ships for the military every single day. All of a sudden, thousands of people were pouring into the Bay Area to work for the defense industry in the shipyards. And they had round-the-clock shifts going on. A lot of the people working in the shipyards she was very clear about were the same people she photographed as that were Dust Bowl migrants or uh, people, black people living under the Jim Crow South that she photographed when she was down there. And suddenly here was this employment. It's been described as the second gold rush. Dorothea wanted to show the effect of having so many people move into an area so quickly. So there's one beautiful photograph she took of a sign that talks about shift workers, you know, never ring this doorbell because there's always somebody sleeping. And, and she talked about how there would be beds that were rented out on an eight-hour schedule. 
so that you had that room. You were one of the three people that rented that room, and people would rotate through a bed because there was no housing. Men and women of all races working together, living side by side, it was unprecedented at this scale. After the crushing segregation that she'd seen in the South and in California, where Latino and Asian farm workers were treated as second class citizens, Wait, sorry, they were actually treated worse than that because they weren't even allowed to vote. Anyway, the point is, Dorothea saw this erosion of racial barriers as a good thing, but she also wasn't totally on board with this industrial boom. I'll get to her environmental concerns in a bit, but I think she saw it as a not-so-great preview of the future. There's a beautiful photograph she did of a stream of workers coming down the stairs at the end of their shift. And when she was looking at that photograph, long after she'd made it, she said, what's so interesting about this photo is no one is looking at anyone else. She was caught by the detail of how separate their lives were, even though they were all working together in such intense circumstances. When she looked at the workers, she saw alienation. Dorothea was the first woman to have a solo show of photography at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. But for most of her life, she didn't really consider herself an artist. Sure, she cared about composition and all that technical stuff, but she wasn't just trying to make an impression on the viewer. She was sending a message. She's the most subtle of photographers in some ways, that balance of walking the line between uh, the combination of something that's beautiful but not too beautiful. Not so beautiful that you ever forget that those two young children wearing tags about to be sent to the concentration camp are now considered to be numbers and not humans. I did an episode about the mass incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II last month. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, check it out. The U.S. Army actually hired Dorothea to document this process because, well, it's actually a little unclear. It seems like maybe they just wanted to have evidence showing that their concentration camps, which is what the government called them, weren't as bad as the Nazi ones. When Dorothea did her work for the Farm Security Administration, she was completely allied with the goals of how her photographs were being used. When she photographed the Japanese-American incarceration, she was adamantly opposed to what was happening to the Japanese-Americans. But it didn't stop her from doing it because she felt it was critical to create a sympathetic record. The military hated the work Dorothea produced. Her photos were meant to convey empathy for Japanese-Americans. Heartbreaking photos of little girls saying the Pledge of Allegiance wasn't what the army was looking for. They ended up clamping down on Dorothea and restricting what she was allowed to show. She felt thwarted and helpless and that she had not really accomplished anything. And in fact, the photographs were withdrawn from circulation and not seen for decades. And so I think she would be very pleased to see the attention they're getting now. People look at those photographs of the internment and they immediately make the connection to anti-Muslim hysteria and fear of immigrants and, uh, you know, uh, scapegoating groups of people and so on. 
Unfortunately, Dorothea had no way of knowing that these pictures would finally get the recognition they deserved decades after her death. You have to understand that the number of Americans that actually were vocally critical of the internment policy was just a tiny, tiny minority. Uh, most were for it, and everybody else was basically didn't give a damn. Interestingly, the only time she seems to have uh, been affected to the point of having a, a nervous breakdown by the things she was photographing was the internment, which is pretty amazing when you think about some of the things she saw and recorded during the Depression. She felt things very, very deeply. So for her to look at these people patiently lining up to wait for a meal, it, it just was devastating to her. So she would go do her photography for the day, and then she'd go back to like a hotel where she might be staying for the night, and she would just have these terrible, terrible stomach pains. She must have had some health problems before that, but that threw her into a long, long period of it. It actually was the beginning of a seven-year period where she wasn't able to even photograph, where she almost died. Um, so she just went into this terribly steep health decline. And certainly doing that work was a, was a part of those health issues for her. She was fascinated by change. She felt sort of a melancholy. She would talk about how in my lifetime these enormous changes have happened and she would, for instance, um, this big fabulous Victorian house in Oakland that became an office for a used car lot, things like that. And then certainly the freeway construction and junked car lots, a lot of what you could describe as uh, real pioneering environmental photography. There's definitely a regret about losing sort of the, the more rural aspects of the Bay Area. There's no question, the sprawl, the housing tract, she was interested in all that and photographed all that. And then of course culminating in the uh, Death of a Valley photo essay that she worked on with Purple Jones, which was all about recording what happened to the people in, the, in the Monticello, the little town at the bottom of the Berryessa Valley who all had to be removed, evacuated, their houses burned down, the trees removed, the graves dug up. Uh, this really eloquent photo essay about the loss of, uh, a loss of a small community, not just, not just the town and the physical, but uh, breaking up the relationships that had been part of daily life for a century or more. This town in Napa, Monticello, was destroyed so that a dam could be built. It's all underwater now. One of the photos shows a giant machine that looks like a bulldozer, but instead of a scooper in front, the thing has huge metal teeth. It looks like a monster. It's hard to tell, but the guy driving it kind of looks like he's smiling. Dorothea also spent time wandering around Oakland. Sometimes she would take pictures of shoppers coming out of Swan's Market. There's even a picture she took of well-dressed ladies walking down Telegraph with the iconic Fox Theater sign in the background. You know, she had this fascination for the way people interacted with one another in public. I think she saw what was happening here as having larger implications for what was happening across the country. It was just a microcosm. In the late 1950s, she was doing photo essays for Life magazine, one of the biggest publications in the country. But 
when she decided to take a pretty dark look at Oakland's criminal justice system, the magazine refused to run it. Here's Drew Johnson describing one of the photos. It's just a close-up of an Oakland Police Department badge on the policeman's chest. You see a little bit of his uniform, and we're actually blowing that up to about four feet high, <laughs> along with 13 others in the entry to the exhibition. It um, doesn't take too much to... Um, I mean, I look at that photo, I feel intimidated. Another photo is a close-up of the back door of a black police van. It looks very Darth Vader-ish. She called the project Public Defender because the main character in this series was a lawyer named Martin Pulich who worked for clients that couldn't afford one. A lot of these defendants were ex-factory workers who had been laid off after the wartime boom. This was the beginning of the so-called white flight era. I think the Public Defender series is one of the most beautiful unseen groups of Dorothea's photographs. It's so tender and evocative. I mean, when you look at, there's a photograph she did of a mother with a baby in a bottle waiting to hear about whatever her husband's been charged with, what will happen. And the woman's just sitting alone in this row of seats. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. This photo was taken inside the Alameda County Courthouse, right across the street from where the Oakland Museum sits today. You totally feel how hard the public defender is working to try to do a good job, you know, to represent people who don't have any money. It's, it, it, is her, it is Dorothea's theme, you know, which is, what about the underdog? At the beginning of this episode, I said we would explore Dorothea Lange's life and her work to figure out what it was that she understood about human nature. I'm sorry, but I don't know if it's really possible to put the answer into words. You've just got to go look at her pictures and see for yourself. Okay, I'm just jumping in here to remind you that the story you just listened to originally aired about three years ago. And uh, now what you're about to hear is my brand new interview with Drew Johnson, the Oakland Museum's curator of photography and visual culture. And we'll be talking all about the new Dorothea Lange digital archive, which just went live this month, August 2020. Okay, here we go. The headline right now is that the Oakland Museum is launching the Dorothea Lang Digital Archive. So, Drew, can you tell me what are people going to find when they explore this website? Uh, yeah, that's something we've wanted to do for a very long time, and we were fortunate to get uh, funding from the Henry Luce Foundation as part of a. It was a much larger grant to sort of wrap up digitizing and cataloging of the entire Lang Archive. And um, they asked if we could do some sort of a product, a publication. What we ultimately decided on was this Dorothea Lang Digital Archive, which is a website connected to the museum website that presents a, a much larger selection of her work than we've ever been able to do before. There's more than 600 images uh, up. <clears throat> They're organized into four main groupings. One of the things um, I know that um, you talked to us when the uh, Politics of Seeing exhibition was up, and it's since traveled to London and Paris and uh, Nashville and Oklahoma City. And 
that was uh, necessarily uh, it was a sort of a small selection of her work concentrated on just a few of her projects, um, which is something we you sort of have to do in an in in-person exhibition. But this website gives a much broader view of her entire career from, you know, 1918 when she first came to San Francisco and started photography to her death in 1965. Includes a lot of projects that weren't represented in that exhibition. So we tried to give a real overview. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And you can can look at not only the photographs and um, the negatives. We have more than 40,000 negatives in the collection, 6,000 prints. But we tried to link them whenever possible to things in the collection like proof sheets, the contact sheets, where you can see all an entire group of photo- photographs, uh, the sort of the before and after of what has become known uh, a better known image, and some personal memorabilia, things like that, like a letter from John Steinbeck telling her how important her work was to him and so forth. So, yeah, we I, I think it's a real window into her working style and her her goals. And you've spent dozens, if not hundreds of hours looking at these photos over the years. How are you seeing them differently in 2020? What is (laughs) happening now in the world that's causing you to maybe view these images through kind of a different, a different lens, so to speak? Yeah, well, I, I think people are instantly struck with the relevance of her work, and I think part of it's partly the relevance to what's happening right now, but it's partly that they've uh, they've always been relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, that a lot of the 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 injustices that she was pointing out uh, have really endured. They're sort of highlighted right now for various reasons. But uh, she gave an interview actually in the '60s, where she was saying that somebody had recently shown her. Uh, another photographer's work uh, about migrant farm workers in the Central Valley, and she was just blown away about how 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 little had changed over the years, and that was in the '60s. Mm-hmm. So of course, um, I mean, I was know, thinking about there, that as well. You know, mm-hmm. uh, she spent so much of her career documenting, you know, the oppression or injustices uh, that farm workers face. And look around. One of the populations that's suffering most from this COVID pandemic is farm workers and, you know, Latino people who work in uh, meat packing factories and things of that nature. So it's it's just amazing, like you just said in that quote, how little things have changed since she was uh, riding around in like a Model T Ford or whatever, documenting these things in in the 30s. Yeah, I mean, things like exploitation of workers or economic injustice or racial injustice, these are obviously long <laughs> enduring problems and um you know she was uh, i think that's one of her great talents was to uh, invite you to empathize and connect with people in that circumstance on a very personal level that was that was certainly certainly it was documenting uh what was then a contemporary very current crises you know like the dust bowl uh that had to be uh, addressed but that as we're saying, is uh, has endured, has just taken slightly different forms over the years. So that you have, I know when when the um, uh, when we did the politics of seeing exhibition was right when the the, the middle of the the Muslim ban. So mm. her photographs of the way uh, Japanese immigrants and their American-born children and grandchildren were being rounded up and sent to camps. Obviously, um, you mentioned the. Uh, the situation with uh, not only farm workers, but other essential workers mm-hmm. in the inner city 
the criminal justice system, her essay on the public defender of Alameda County is really startling. You know, I'd <laughs> and, love to talk you know, about I mean, that a little bit more because I was, I spent some time just kind of staring at those photos last night. Mm. And I think it was really unusual for photographers of that era to show the criminal justice system in right. such a critical way. In her photos, the police look pretty scary, yeah. <laughs> pretty, uh, they, they're kind of like a foreboding presence looming over, you know, these people, but she, you can tell she's empathizing with the, the, the people going through the system, you know, the people who are, be, who have been charged with crimes or their relatives who are sitting in the courthouse right. hearing these verdicts, you see the anguish and despair in their faces when they realize they're going to end up going to jail or that, you know, a wife is going to lose her husband to the incarceration, okay. uh, that he's facing. And I was just wondering if you feel like uh, looking at those photos again in 2020 in the wake of the you know George Floyd uprisings and the, the return of the Black Lives Matter movement, if that has, um, if the photos, like if the meaning has changed at all for you. I mean, a lot of these photos were taken at the Alameda County Courthouse just down the block from the museum. And Absolutely. two weeks ago, that courthouse was covered in graffiti and even set on fire. Yeah, I mean it's it's actually directly across the street from the museum. It's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's that close, and um, some of the uh, photographs of Japanese families being uh, removed from their homes were were literally taken on the side of the museum. And one wow. of the things that really uh, that continued as a as someone who was born and raised in Oakland, uh, uh, the incredible East Bay focus of so much of her work. It was really, really amazing to go to London and Paris and see all these photographs of Oakland that mm-hmm. were just being, you know, just being absolutely adored by the European audiences. But uh, to get back to you, the public defender, I'm really, really happy to highlight that project because it gets very little attention when people look at her work. And I think it's a really important series, and it's and it's one case where I think I do look at it differently now. In mm. after the past few months, and what's been going on in California and, and the country, because uh, you know I sort of I used to think that it was just about the courtroom and the and the, the public defender and the defendant working together and so on, but it really is about law enforcement as much as it's about anything. Mm-hmm. And there's some incredibly ominous photographs she took the two. Uh, like the back of a paddy wagon, or Black Mariah, it's called, which is just, it looks, the lighting is almost gothic. And then she took a close-up of an Oakland Police Department, Oakland Police Officer's badge that we actually blew up. We have a new uh, installation of Lang's work in the in the art gallery at the museum, which hopefully won't be too long before it's open to the public again. But um, we actually blew it up and uh, put it on the wall, and it was the effect was was really shocking. Um, we didn't expect it to be quite such a um, have such an impact. This close up of the Oakland police badge it really sort of smacks you in the face. Yeah. And so we we took it down and put up uh, made a smaller print of it and hung it next to another photograph taken at about the same time, which shows three or four young black men in Oakland sort of hanging out on the street and having a good time. And the juxtaposition of those two images, which as far as we know, Lang never juxtaposed herself, uh, but she was all in for that as a technique. She was, as she said, I used to think in terms of single images, no more. Now I think in terms of series or pairings of images and pairings of images with text. We wrote a little label 
uh, encourage visitors to look at visitors to look at the two prints together and think about uh, law enforcement and how and how that reflects on the com- law enforcement and the community and think about their own situation in regards to that. And this was, you know, this was six months ago before the, before the uprisings that have happened. So um, I think that's a really good example of she almost sort of the way she anticipated things or recognized things about this country that are hard to shake off. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, every one of her photos is really telling a story. And so many of those stories are so incredibly relevant right now. Another photo that I've been thinking about recently is is one of her famous photos that I know is up in the uh, Politics of Seeing exhibit. And I'm, I'm talking about the one of a uh, black woman who's working as a welder. And she's got like the, her kind of welding mask sort of uh, propped up so you can see her face. And she just looks... Um, I mean, she's really illustrating this idea of breaking down not only gender barriers, women going to work in these factories, but also racial barriers, because it was a huge challenge uh, for people of color, black people specifically, to get those jobs. I interviewed Betty Reed Soskin up at the uh, Rosie mm-hmm. the Riveter Museum a couple years ago, and she was telling me she couldn't get those jobs. It took years before you know the, the, union, the opposition of the unions to employing uh, black people was eventually um, successfully challenged. Yeah, she came to the exhibit and I met her, by the way. That was, that was wow. really great. Yeah, one of the only um, yeah, times I've I ever been that... starstruck while interviewing someone with <laughs> Doug Nibidri. She yeah. is a force of nature. I know what you mean, yeah. Well, I, you know, I think Lang saw that um, one of the things she was trying to get across in that series on the shipyards that you're talking about, and mm-hmm. that photograph in particular, I mean, it could absolutely substitute for the We Can Do It, uh, famous We Can Do It poster, Rosie yeah. the River mm-hmm. poster. Um, she was uh, seeing that as an example of something that could be constructive and that that was basically working. As she said, you know, a, a large part of the workforce in the shipyards was either white Okies and Arkies who had Dust Bowl refugees, mm-hmm. basically, who had lost their jobs, their farms, and African-American workers who had fled the Jim Crow South uh, coming out to California and finding jobs and even though it was not, as you pointed out, was not you know a perfect thing, she saw that as a hopeful development. Of course, at the same time, almost she was also photographing Americans of Japanese descent being rounded up and sent to prison camps. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that that, that we really um, we really highlight. I think it's fair to characterize Lang as a social justice photographer, and we use that term in describing her work and sort of summarizing where she was at. And I think that's appropriate. It, it, it's what I find fascinating is that um, she she was not um, she rarely photographed demonstrations or protests. <clears throat> very rarely, she was, as far as we know, not a member of any um, you know organized political groups that did not seem to appeal to her. She wanted you to recognize the humanity of people that were suffering for various reasons or the target of injustice and identify with them on a personal level. And, um, that's her great art. Uh, she, I think she felt that that was a more powerful way to bring about change than at least for her, than, you know, than organizing, being a part of, you know, organized resistance or anything like that. So 
Well, it's interesting because um, I know that her photos were being used by the the FSA to essentially generate support for these New Deal era programs. Exactly. Essentially, you know, her photos were making the case for why America needed a better and a bigger, uh, more substantial social safety net. And it's amazing that she was actually employed by the government to do that because in today's modern political context, it's almost incomprehensible or inconceivable <laughs> to think about, you know, the federal government or, you know, any government to employing artists, poets, muralists, yep. photographers to create art in support of essentially the welfare state. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. It's it's almost impossible to imagine such a thing as the Fund Security Administration, uh, a government agency sending photographers out to uh, to photograph uh, a, a social crisis. And when I think about what was what they accomplished with almost zero budget, I mean, they were constantly oh. under threat. They had to tiptoe about their political intentions. I mean, as you said, they were totally the reason they were doing this was to create public support for government relief and especially camps for the migrant workers. But they basically had to deny that that's what they were doing. It was all under the guise of the historical division uh, of the government of the FSA. Uh, no, no, we're just, we're just recording what's happening out here. We have no agenda. And it was, you know, basically disingenuous, but it was a clear, uh, intent on their part that that Lang supported wholeheartedly. She knew what she was doing in that regard, uh, which is again interesting because just a few years later she was hired by the War Department to photograph the internment, the incarceration of Japanese Americans, and that same government uh, was doing something that she thought was absolutely horrible and egregious, and she. Um, you know, she did join. Uh, she's the the almost vanishingly small number of Americans who actively um, worked against the internment uh, by contributing to. There was a very small group of people that she and her husband Paul Taylor were involved with mm-hmm. to um, to uh, remind the government that these were loyal Americans and that what was happening was unconstitutional. And they put out pamphlets. And there's a booklet in the uh, on the website that you can take a look at that she contributed photographs to. It was partly that she and, because they lived in Berkeley, her husband taught at the university, they knew lots of Japanese American students. And the archive actually has letters from the people she photographed in the, in the camps, thanking her for her efforts on their behalf, is the word, wording they used. And in one case, there's this really poignant letter where uh, somebody is asking her for a photograph that she had taken of their mother because it was the only photograph that they ha- would would have of her. So, you know, she kept in touch with people often even after she was photographed, after she photographed them, I mean. Wow. Another group of people that she really humanized with her photos, and, and again, a group that was not often shown in a, uh, a positive light generally, were um, essentially homeless people. There's a couple photos that are in the archives that I saw that I was looking at yesterday. Uh, that I believe they were part of a series called The Walking Wounded. And right. um, it, the the caption says these are this is a homeless person or a disabled person and or a homeless and disabled person in Oakland. I think there's one where someone's kind of like leaning against a like a telephone pole or a power pole, and uh, there's like a cane. And again, you know, I mean, just looking around the streets of Oakland now, there's several uh, encampments of people right. without homes within a couple blocks of where I live. And you know, I walk by them, and then thinking that this has been 
you know, I mean, we've seen an explosion in homelessness in the last couple of years, but thinking that this goes back, right. you know, uh, five, six, seven decades, again, the government still hasn't figured out how to take care of these people, you know, or, or support folks that, uh, that are living on the streets. It's, um, I mean, it's very sobering, you know, to look at that photo and think about how long this crisis really stretches back. Yeah, she said a major. She said the the walking wounded is a major theme in her work, and uh, it's not. It doesn't refer to a specific series, but uh, it's sort of a. Uh, she would organize photographs from her archive, some moments that she had taken twenty years earlier, onto theme like that, and and she considered that one of her most important themes. She actually considered her in a way. She was herself a member of the walking wounded because she had had polio as a as a young child and was had a lifelong um, limp. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she would. Uh, you get the impression that uh, when she didn't have anything specific to do, she would just go out into the streets of Oakland or Berkeley or San Francisco and try to capture what street life was like, which is, again, a very little known body of work, but it's something that she did for year, many years. And so, um, you know, you could easily, I think, organize an exhibition of just her, her East Bay photograph, East Bay street life photographs. They're pretty remarkable. And especially for people who are familiar with the East Bay, you know, living here, uh, it's a really exciting collection of photos to look through because you see landmarks that are still here. Uh, you see Swan's right. Marketplace, you know, which is now in, is still in <laughs> Old Oakland or uh, one of my favorites. And I'm not sure if this is in the archive or not, or if it's on the website rather, but uh, there's this photo of these two women wearing very uh, flamboyant hats. And in the background, you see the Fox Theater. And it's just such a cool right. image because, it, I mean, the, the theater looks exactly the same today. You know, the, this, that iconic sign is still there. There's probably some right. more lights on it now. But uh, you can imagine Dorothea Lang kind of wandering the streets of, of Oakland just looking for interesting people or interesting scenes of uh, street life to, to shoot. Yeah, every time I look at the um, Swan's Market, she had a particular attraction for Swan's Market, uh, both during the war and after. And uh, every time I go through some of her uh, Oakland photographs, and there's really many hundreds of them, I, I am sort of, I'm sort of looking for is there is there a picture of my grandmother in there somewhere? <laughs> you know, wow. Because, yeah. uh, I know that would that would just be too good to be true, I guess. But it'd be amazing. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, for someone, she's a world-renowned, literally, uh, you know, I mean, exhibitions of her work are in Europe are, are just packed. But uh, so people are, are continually surprised to find that she had such an intense uh, connection to the East Bay, which is, of course, you know, a logical reason why the archive ended up at the Oakland Museum. Yeah, I was wondering about that. So uh, was that just Paul Taylor's personal choice? Because I think in the in the notes it says gift of Paul Taylor, I believe. So uh, was, was right. it his choice to donate the archive to the Oakland Museum? And was there any competition for that archive? Or was it pretty much set in stone that, that you guys would end up with the photos? Uh, no, it was not under set in stone at all, as, as I understand. And I can only go on what my predecessor, Therese Heyman, who was the uh, founding curator of photography at the museum and the curator there for many, many years, and uh, including before the current building was built. Wow. And she always told me that um, she um, had she had met with both Paul and Dorothea wow. before Dorothea passed, uh, and that there was a lot of uh, you know, they were trying to figure out what to do with the archive. A lot of museums and institutions were interested. Uh, and she sort of painted a picture of what the Oakland Museum of California would be. As I say, the building wasn't constructed yet, and that it would be a different kind of museum, 
that it would be a museum of the people uh, in the sense that uh, it was really going to be a community oriented and uh, that her photographs would be made available to just about to everybody, you know, not just scholars and researchers and that there was value in having it be a local institution. And um, so that Paul ultimately made the decision to donate it to the museum. Uh, he was, for your listeners uh, may not know, he was a uh, social scientist, professor of sociology, and an expert in migrant farm labor who taught at the University of California at Berkeley for many, many years. Well, I'm glad that he uh, he went with the Oakland Museum because it's, it's just <laughs> the appropriate choice. I mean, like you said, so many of the photos in the collection were taken within just a few blocks uh, or even right across the street or, or down the street from, from the museum. So it's, it's an incredible archive. And speaking of the museum, uh, just to kind of wrap things up here, this is a huge launch, you know, that people can see the, the online uh, archive right now. But are there any other uh, big projects that you're working on currently? I know that the uh, museum is going to be closed for the foreseeable future, unfortunately, due to the uh, <laughs> pandemic. So are there any other online uh, exhibits that we can look forward to in the coming weeks or months? We, uh, online exhibits, there's, you, there's a condensed version of the current installation online that's available online. Uh, we did a program with a couple of artists, local artists who uh, are inspired by Lang, Hung Lu and Paul Kitagaki Jr. Hung Lu is one of the best known uh, American painters um, who's done a series of paintings based on Lang's photographs and Paul Kitagaki who has uh, over the years, re-photographed some of the same individuals who were uh, incarcerated in the internment camps uh, that Dorothea Lang had photographed. And we did a, a, a live Zoom program uh, about a month ago, which is about was for members only, but is about to go public to the general public. And we're looking at a couple more. Uh, it was so well-received, actually. We're looking at a couple more Lang. I, I think the operative term is Lang lounges. Uh, which are uh, live programs. We don't know what shape they're going to take at this point, but they probably will involve some uh, contemporary artists or photographers uh, either talking about Lang uh, or their own work and how it relates to Lang. I've, you know, I've worked at the museum for and with this collection for about 30 years, and it seems like every time I meet a photographer, especially one who is a documentary photographer, or interested in social questions, they almost immediately tell me that Dorothea Lange is one of the main reasons they, they're doing their work and one of their main influences and inspirations. So um, it's, it's very easy to make connections between her work and um, what a lot of contemporary artists are doing. Absolutely. And it doesn't surprise me to hear uh, that just because her work is so, so iconic. All right, Drew, I think that'll do it. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. Again, I encourage everyone to go onto the Oakland Museum's website and find that Dorothea Lang Digital Archive. And I really hope you guys can open the doors again soon uh, so we can see some of these photos in person again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. A few other people at the Oakland Museum who I'd like to thank are S. Topiary Landberg, who helped curate the uh, Dorothea Lang archive, and Lindsay Wright. 
Now, on to my favorite people in the world. You folks out there who are supporting this show, uh, making this podcast is a labor of love, but I do still have bills to pay. So when I say that I couldn't do East Bay yesterday without you, I really, really mean it. Huge shout out to the following supporters. Libby Flynn, Marley Staples, Benjamin F. Nicholson, Chris Orr, Andrew Dunkel, Sophie Labrie, Jim Chanin, Lynn Adler, Tasneem Raja, Lisa Eugene, Carrie Kiefer, Christy George, Victor Ochoa, Christian Kazakoff, Jonathan Schwartz, Gregory S. Nerland, Kurt Ryback, Katie Wilson, Steve Walker, Adam Sinister, Anna Ziegler, Brittany Luby, Heidi Skolnick, Armando Miller, Darlene Pagano, Susan Marchiona, Larry Hicks, Melissa Kimball, Deborah Linzer, Susan Wester, An Le Huang, Keith Wall, Willem Smith Clark, Sylvia Johnson, Alex Acuna, Kevin Umezawa, Shaping San Francisco, Dana Hull, Elaine Cull, Dugan, Katie Prudick, Heather Hrixhue. I'm sorry, Heather, I probably am pronouncing that wrong. If you drop me an email with uh, how to pronounce that, I will say your name again the right way. Um, Tom Bador, Alina Kostantinescu, Christine Osborne, Jen Darmstadt Holm, Matt Gadijan, and John Bourne. Thanks again to each and every one of you. Every time I get a new Patreon supporter, it truly makes my day. So if you want to support the show, hit the donate link in the upper right-hand corner of eastbayyesterday.com. And uh, while you're there at the website, make sure you follow East Bay Yesterday on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. There's links to all those social pages uh, right there at the top of the screen. Okay, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, you can find it on SoundCloud, you know, all the major podcast apps. And again, if you appreciate this show, please leave a rating and a review or just tell someone about it, tell them on social media or in person. Either way, uh, I don't have a marketing budget. Please spread the word if you, uh, if you like what you hear. Music for this episode came from Carol Gibbons, Ozzy Nelson, Studio Noir, and Justin Lee. The theme song music came from Anatech. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.